Good morning. Hopefully everybody has a lesson that says of God and the Holy Trinity, number two. And if you don't, there's a few more on the corner of the table over there. But uh, let me encourage you to turn to Isaiah, <coughs> excuse me, Isaiah chapter 44. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 just to prepare our hearts for the, the subject at hand. Isaiah 44 and verses 1 through 8. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among you, excuse me, and they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's, and that one will call in the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or is there any other rock I know of none? And let us pray. Father, we come before thee this Lord's Day morning, and I, I, I thank you for the privilege we have to gather together this day uh, when our, our minds are drawn to the, the glory of your being and the reality of the first day of the week that you were raised from the dead. It reminds our hearts of the power and the glory of the resurrection, and I, I thank you for each one that is here and their, their love for Christ, and I, I, I pray that our time would be profitable and helpful to our souls, and even a, a blessed preparation for further worship this day, and I would pray for the help of your Holy Spirit these moments to just bring forth your word in a way that is uh, honoring and pleasing to thee and is um, instructive to our minds and our thinking process and what would be truly uh, edifying to our own souls as we think about the character of the God that we love and know and serve. So we just commit this time to thee. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is our second study um, related to the second chapter of the London Baptist Confession of, of Faith, which is entitled, Of God and the Holy Trinity. Um, and in our first study, I just sought to underscore the importance of the knowledge of the character of the being of God, the knowledge of the, the perfections of God. Um, and you'll notice the confession itself, that this chapter, uh, it, it has three different paragraphs. And, and Sam Waldron, in his very helpful work on the confession, um, divides it up this way. There's three different paragraphs. Paragraph one, the attributes of God. Paragraph two, the relations of God to his creatures. And then thirdly, the triunity of God. He writes, this chapter states the orthodox doctrine of God and the Holy Trinity. In so doing, it identifies itself with the historic doctrine of the church or the Trinity 
as formulated in the Nicene Creed. On the other hand, it so describes the attributes of God and his relations to the creatures as to anticipate the Reformed emphasis on the sovereignty of God in chapter 4. In these paragraphs, there is a wonderful and balanced presentation of the character or attributes of God. The religion of our day needs more of contemplating God and living with the conscious reality that it is the God with whom we have to do. Uh, I, I thought it would be, uh, just in kind of moving on here, it would be helpful just to, just to read this first paragraph in your hearing. So if you notice that on your notes, just to kind of deepen it in our thinking process. Um, there is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and he will by no means clear the guilty. So this is a kind of very helpful statement of the nature and the, and the character of God. So kind of two, two main headings this morning. The first one is that God is one. God is one. There is one God to the exclusion of all others. And this is opposed to uh, polytheism, as Charles Hodge says. Um, as the word implies, polytheism is the theory which assumes the existence of many gods. And to that, A.A. Hodge says polytheism, excuse me, polytheism distributes the perfections and functions of the infinite God among many limited gods. But we, in contrast to that, affirm that there is only one God to the exclusion of all others. And just some thoughts here under the heading of the clarification uh, of this doctrine. Um, and kind of a, a, a helpful quote by um, Turretson in his work, um, in terms of a, connected to the clarification of the doctrine, he writes, um, one numerically is used in two senses, either affirmatively or also exclusively. In the former sense, uh, that is one which is undivided in itself and divisible by any other, but besides which others of the same order and nature can be granted as every human individual is one numerically. In the latter sense, that is one which is the only one and single, besides which there is nothing else like it, as the Son is said to be one because the only one. The question here does not concern the unity of God in the former sense, but in the latter. God is so one affirmatively as to in division, that he is also one as to the exclusion of others. And that's what we're really pulling from here. He is one to the exclusion of others. Um, the, the God is one exclusively is made clear by just a consideration of the various perfections that make up his being. So here's some, some scriptural substantiation, substantiation will be Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I am he, and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded. It is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. First Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Deuteronomy 4.35, to you it, it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is none other besides him. Um, and just to kind of proceed under this heading, the... Um, 
The infinity of God precludes the existence of more than one God. The infinity of God precludes the existence of more than one God. Thomas Watson wrote, there is but one infinite being, therefore there is but one God. There cannot be two infinites. Uh, Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord, Jeremiah 23, 24. If there be one infinite filling all places at once, how can there be any room for another infinite, uh, infinite to subsist? So that the nature of infinity precludes the existence of more than one God. Well, also that God is one facilitates the practice of, of making him the chief object of our affections. And I find this to be very helpful in terms of worship and trust. Um, Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, excuse me, the Lord our God is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And and the main point I want to make here is that this injunction to love God supremely with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our might is found in a verse where there's an emphasis on the fact that there is one God. And we see the same thing in Mark 12, 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So the idea here would be that the, the stream of, of affection is weakened when it's moved and diverted in many different directions, but it gains force when it's, it's focused in one direction, and there's one God to worship. The, the next point is, is very similar, that God as one facilitates supreme devotion to him, not only worship, but supreme devotion to him. Uh, 1 Kings 8, 60, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no one else. Let you therefore be wholly devoted to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as it is this day. So the the logic is quite similar here. There there is only one God, therefore be fully devoted to that God. There's only one God to be fully devoted to. So conceptually, it helps us in terms of worship. It helps us in terms of the level of our commitment to, to him. Um, next, the, the unity of God or the oneness of God defines the bounds of our existence. Um, and here, 1 Corinthians 8, 4 and following, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us... There is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Hodge wrote, um, He, the one God, is the source of the whole universe and all it contains. He created all things by the word of his power. All things, excuse me, all other beings are his creatures. He is our end. For his glory, we were created and redeemed. Well, next, uh, the God who's presented in Scripture as being one in essence is also the God who's the source of, of real blessing, the, the source of true blessing. I won't reread it, but you still probably have your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 44 and, and verse 8. And really, all I want you to notice here is that verse 1 indicates that we are chosen by God. 
Uh, verse 2 indicates that we are comforted by God. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. Uh, then in verses 3 and following, it talks about the kinds of blessings that we receive from God. And this is in the context where um, God is presented as being one God. You might have noticed in verse 6, I am the first, I am the last. There is no God besides me. Again, down in verse 8, is there any God besides me? So in the context of receiving blessing, God is presented as being one God. The, the next point is a, <clears throat> kind of a, of a caution um, with the idea of there is one God. And... Um, comes from Thomas Manton. He says, bear assent to the articles of religion do not infer um, true faith. Uh, James 2.19, thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The, dev the devils believe and tremble. And Manton comments, and this is not in your notes, he comments on that statement in James 2.19. Uh, he says, and, and tremble, the word signifieth extreme fear and horror of spirit. They have an assent which causes horror and torment, but they have not a faith which causes confidence and peace. It's kind of interesting. For you and I, it's a source of joy and peace and comfort. For demons, or for those who don't fear God, they may assent to this, but it's a cause of terror, especially demons. They understand the character of God. They really know his character, but they have rebelled against him. And... Um, and, and Manton writes, um, true faith uniteth to Christ. It is conversant about his person. In short, there is not only assent in faith, but consent. Not only an assent to the truth of the word, but a consent to take Christ. There must be an act that is directed directly and formally conversant about the person of Christ. A man may be right in opinion and judgment, but a vile affections and a carnal Christian is in a great danger as a pagan or idolater or heretic. For though his judgment be sound, yet his manners are heterodox and heretical. There is a form of knowledge, Romans 2.20, as well as a form of godliness, 2 Timothy 3.5. A form of knowledge is nothing but an idea or module of truth in the brains when there is not power or virtue to change and transform the heart. So it's just kind of an intellectual apprehension of the truth, but there's not the mere, excuse me, the moral and spiritual transformation that comes from communion with the person of Christ. Okay. Um, next, um, oh, I got my pages mixed up here. Next, um, this one God is living and true. He is living and true. Uh, and, and there are some texts which mention the fact that God is living and true together. John chapter 10 and verse 10. The Lord is the true God, and he is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. And then 1 Thessalonians 1.9 in connection with conversion they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And, and what we're focusing on here, first of all, is, the, is that God is living and then that he is true. Um, and under this heading, we would point out that God is living. This is in contrast to idols. Psalm 115.3, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They, they cannot make a sound. So this is, it's in contrast to idols. Um, 
in, in relationship to this true conversion results in a life um, of serving the God who is living and true, of serving the God who is living and true. And that point would be made by 1 Thessalonians 1.9, for they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned from God to serve, from idols to serve a God who is living and true. And Charles Wanamaker, a helpful commentator, wrote, um, notes that the phrase, to serve the living and true God embraces the totality of their Christian religious experience. Um, and then I have a couple other passages here that, that are helpful in this connection that results in, in serving the living God who is, who is living and true. John 7, 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And then notice in Matthew 16, 15, he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter, excuse me, Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, consequently, um, it's a reality that really uh, assists in identifying our relationship to the being of God. And Romans 9, 26 is helpful. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called sons of the living God. So that's how we are to think of ourselves, as, as sons or daughters of the living God. Next, it's a biblical reality that helps us to understand the nature of a true gospel church. The fact that God is a living God helps us to understand the nature of a true gospel church. In 1 Timothy 3.15, I bring this out in new members class, it, it's, it's kind of a key verse in 1 Timothy, which is one of the pastoral letters, uh, in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. So it helps us to understand something of the nature of a true gospel church. It's the church of the living God. Also, this identification will bear upon the decision to, to separate ourselves from uh, unhealthy or un. Um, unhealthy worldly influences. And 2 Corinthians 6.14 and following is um, of assistance here. Paul writes, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And notice this statement. We are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What's the significance of that? Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. One of the questions that we all have to deal with, and maybe even with uh, people that become new Christians, well, I'm a Christian now, what can I do? What can I read? Where can I go? How am I supposed to be different from the world? And this is very helpful. It's really anything that grieves the Holy Spirit of God, that's what we don't do. Anything that has a defiling effect on the Holy Spirit that indwells us, that, that's what we, we shy away from. So it's not like, here's a list of things that you don't do. It, it's separating from anything that's going to impinge upon our love for God and our love for Christ and, and in a sense that we are pleasing the Holy Spirit of God in, in our own soul. Well then, uh, relatedly, it's the basis of true, deep, 
longing for communion with the being of God or heartfelt communion. I have here Psalm 41, 42.1, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts, notice this, for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Let me just read a couple of other verses to you from, uh, let's see, Psalm chapter 63. And these are, these are all kind of similar, make similar points, but Psalm chapter 63 and verse 1 says, um, O God, you are my God, I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And then Psalm 73, 25 and 26 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And then one other, Psalm chapter 84, verses 1 and 2. Psalm chapter 84, verses 1 and 2. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. None of those verses would make any sense at all if God was not a living God that we can have actual, real, deep communion with for the the good of our souls. Well, uh, next, it's a profound motivation to avoid apostasy. The fact that God is the living God, it's a weighty motivation to avoid apostasy. Two verses from Hebrews Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. Hebrews 10.31, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then next, it's a characteristic uh, that that governs our appreciation for the new Jerusalem. Um, Hebrews 12.22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are rolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. But especially we're thinking of these words, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and myriads of angels. Okay, then next, if God was not the living God, we could not come to him in prayer. If he was not the living God, there would be zero motivation to come to him in prayer. Proverbs 15, 29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but but he hears the prayer of the righteous. If he were not living, he would hear nothing. It's because God is the living God and the ever-present God that we feel comfortable in praying to him. Well, then next, if God were not the living God, he could not be omnipresent. We read here that the eyes of the Lord are in all places, beholding the evil and the good. Um, that's not, that would not be true if he is lifeless. That would not be true if he is dead. And then relatedly along the same lines, if God were not living, he could not be all-knowing. Uh, Isaiah 29 and verse 15, Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and those and whose deeds are done in a dark place, and they say, who sees and who knows? Well, God knows, and God sees, because he's present and because he's living. He couldn't be present. He couldn't be all-knowing if he was not the living God. Well, then, uh, lastly, if God is not the living God, he cannot be all-powerful. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Ah, well, I know there's six minutes left, but I'm done. So we'll just love to the Lord in prayer, shall we?
Father, we thank you for these considerations, and, and we thank you for the kind of God that we worship, the kind of God that we serve. We thank you that you have revealed to us in Holy Scripture your character and your nature, and I, I pray it will be edifying to our own souls. I, I pray it would help us in our, our thinking about you. I pray it would help us as we think about our relationship to the world. I pray it would help us as we think about the privilege we have in prayer, as we think about your presence as we think about your knowledge we, we pray it would be a pervasive uh, attribute in our thinking process that you are the living God the ever-present God and as such we ask that you would continue to work in our souls this day and we pray as we would come together to worship you um, in just a few minutes that, that you would meet with our souls that you would empower us to worship you and glory in thee and praise thee and delight in thee above all things so we, we thank you for the time together and we commit this to thee and we ask these things in Jesus name amen <laughs>